Well, all right, we are in the season of Pentecost and we're continuing to look at the lectionary texts. This week we're, we're going to look at the gospel text found in Matthew chapter 9. We're not going to look at all of what has been prescribed in the lectionary. We're just going to look at four very crucial verses, but we'll talk about what follows it and why these verses are so significant today. The verses we're going to look at are Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Here's what they say. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were like sheep harassed and helpless without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. End of reading. Father, I ask now that as we gather around your word, that you would speak your word clearly, passionately, and wisely through my very imperfect and feeble lips. Holy Spirit, have your way among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us now we ask in Jesus name amen so I was sitting in a cafe near the East Village some time ago and I decided to strike up a conversation with the girl sitting next to me so I, I just sort of kind of leaned over and tried not to be weird or creepy and said Hey, would you mind if I ask you a question? And sort of with a little hesitation, she said, sure. I said, if you could describe your year in one word, what would that word be? Well, she took a long pause and thought about it. And then finally the woman looked at me and said, brutal. And probably out of just awkwardness because of how honest it was, I, I said, oh, I, I, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. Would you, would you mind or would you be open to sharing maybe some of the reasons why it's been such a tough year for you? And again, she sort of paused like, who are you and why are you asking me this? She even said, well, I don't know you at all, but here it goes. All right, fine. And quickly she listed off a number of her reasons. I'm a recovering heroin addict who's still trying to get clean. My mom was diagnosed with cancer. Me and my partner broke up and I was forced to move back in with my mom. And being a trans person is just hard. Well, of course, I was barraged with a litany of things that I wasn't prepared to talk about. I didn't know what to say. And so again, I just, I said, I, I'm so sorry to hear about your, your struggles. That does sound like a brutal year. And then abruptly she said, wait, wait, wait. So why are you talking to me? And I explained, well, I'm a pastor that started a fairly new church in the neighborhood here, and I'm just looking to get to know my neighbors as much as I can. And then she said, okay, why do you want to talk to me? 
translation, why would a pastor want to have a conversation with me? This isn't the first time I've gotten such a response after people find out that I am a pastor of a church. Oftentimes, I, people suddenly begin apologizing for their language after they find out what I do. You know, it's as if my, my pristine ears have never heard such words before. And so they're, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Father, I'm sorry, Reverend, for using my language. And I say, hey, listen, just be yourself. I don't, you know, I don't care. I just want to get to know you, you know. Uh, and then other times people will clam up, they'll get really afraid that I'm just sort of sitting back the whole time, quietly judging their every move, because, you know, guess what, the church has given off that vibe a whole lot, a whole lot. And it's understandable that they think if I'm a pastor that I'm definitely judging them. I promise you folks, uh, I'm not, at least I'm trying really hard not to, I think every one of us is sort of prone to that in one way or another, but I try really hard not to judge people based on appearances or what I'm hearing in an initial conversation. Sometimes people will, when they find out that I'm in ministry, will um, begin to open up to me and they'll start sharing all of their life's experiences. And, and I love it when that happens. But increasingly, I have heard the question that I got from the person I was sitting next to in the cafe that day in the East Village. Why are you talking to me? It occurs to me that, that the church is probably being asked the same question by large segments of our culture too, but it's a little different. As the church talks and preaches the gospel, I think the culture is often prone to asking, why are you so preachy? Why do you want to talk to me about Jesus? Why are you so insistent that Jesus be the way for me? So I want to answer that question from the text today because I think we have good answers. Uh, first of all, it might be kind of simplistic, but it's pretty clear that Jesus calls his church to be preachy. And I don't mean preachy in the negative and annoying way that you might be thinking of. I mean just people that tell other people about Jesus. You can't really get away from it. Look at what he says in verse 37. As Jesus looks over the masses of people, the cities teeming with people, he declares the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. A little later, we're going to see Jesus do just that. As in verse 6, he sends out the apostles saying, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go. Preach as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Over and over throughout the Bible, the call from God is for his people to do the same as we go to those who are, who are seen as running away from him or, or pushing him away and tell them that indeed they need not fear him, that in fact he has good news for them, a kingdom of refuge away from the weariness and troubles of this world. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says to Peter, his chief apostle, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. In all of his last words to his disciples, there's this sort of commissioning. So you have Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to go to the world. John 20, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
be the same kind of person that I was in this world to them. Go preach the kingdom of God. Go be a force for healing. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. It's a promise. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From the very, very beginning, Christianity was meant to be an evangelical enterprise. It was meant to go beyond our natural comforts and confines to the ends of the world. And it was going to go that way through proclamation, through preaching a message. As you know, who have known me for a while, and maybe for those of you who don't, you'll find this out for the first time, but I have had literally hundreds, if not into the thousand range, uh, of conversations with random strangers throughout my time serving in Manhattan as a church planting pastor with the goal that I would get an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. I've spoken to Hindus and Buddhists and secularists and humanists and Muslims and Jews and shamanists, singlaps, Christians and gays and uh, gay men, lesbian women, transgender people, a Swedish guy or two. I mean, I've spoken to everyone from everywhere in the world and, and, and what I've seen from such conversations in this particular part of New York City in Manhattan is that there is an awful lot of people looking to shed their past. As most of you know, most people living especially in our area of Manhattan didn't grow up in Manhattan. Manhattan isn't their home. It's somewhere they came to often leaving much smaller towns, much smaller areas. And why did they come? Because Manhattan had a promise for them, or at least the allure of a promise, that this was a place that they could sort of have a new start in life. That you could literally frame an entire new identity there. In some sense, Manhattan has this allure of being able to be reborn. So, so the lore, the promise is if, if you work hard enough and if you network hard enough and if you are successful enough that you can be anything you want to be. If you're successful enough, you can be reborn in your career. If you've made enough money, then you can be reborn by your status. You can be reborn in your sexuality or your gender. I mean, you name it, the, the list goes on and on. But under it all, there is this desire for new birth. But of course, none of these things can actually provide true new birth. None of these things can actually provide a truly new identity. The past does not go away so easy. The present offers no absolution for the past, and the future is entirely insecure, especially as we've seen over the last few months in this city. It will continue to be so. It's never static or predictable. One man who had had a lot of success in the city, I think it was my second day going out and talking to people, told me of all of the success he had in his first few years in the city. He owned a restaurant, had a wonderful wife and a child, everything was going great, and had since lost all of those things in various circumstances 
And he looked at me and he said, what you need to know about living in New York City is that this city exists for one reason, to edit out the weak. That was the sound of a man who had moved to the city with hopes of being reborn, only to find out that what he had put his hopes in did not pan out. Jesus looks over the world, our country, our city, and says, the world is trying to be reborn by the wrong things. They won't work. I, therefore, raise up workers to go tell them what does work, knowing me and the forgiveness I bring, the satisfaction I provide, and the purpose I supply. The Christian church's message is that ultimately all of the things of this world are fleeting, but there is one above space and time, one who descended into this world to save the world, to bring the people outside of this world to a better home, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So we preach because he's called us to. But we also preach because, well, Christ loves those people out there. I mean, hear the heart of Jesus right now. I so love this passage because it's, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion or to define it, a sense of, of shared suffering with them, a sense of empathy with them. His heart breaks as he sees the world running after all sorts of lesser things that he knows will only lead to disillusion and heartbreak. To Jesus, the world looks harassed and helpless. The word for harassed in Greek is literally flayed open or, or slashed open. And the word for, for helpless is, is cast down. These were words used to describe what a wolf would do to a sheep without a shepherd. He tears open the sheep, flings it around in his mouth, and the sheep would lie bleeding there to death. That is the way our world looks to Jesus. And yet, of course, like a, like a herd of sheep, unaware that there is a wolf in their midst, they don't realize it. They are heading right for the trap that he has set. The only way they can be rescued from certain death is if someone comes and tells them and steers them away from the wolf. They need the good shepherd. I wonder, not in a condescending way, I, I, I mean, because it's really easy to do that if we're not thinking, if we're not careful. But I wonder if in the most compassionate of ways, we forget to see our neighbors and our communities and our cities the way Jesus does, as sheep without a shepherd harassed and helpless. Instead of looking to blame this or that thing on this or that person, 
Can we, as God's people, look at our neighbors the same way Jesus looks at them? Not as enemies, not as opponents, but as harassed and helpless sheep being led to the slaughter. A while back, I had a really interesting conversation with a man I met in the streets of San Diego. Initially, I had seen him running past me a few times, and my curiosity got the best of me after the third time of him running past me. And I said, hey, what, what, why are you in such a hurry? And he stopped, and he told me, well, that he was trying to get his local magazine uh, to, to, the, uh, to the printer in time before deadline. Uh, the magazine he worked for was uh, San Diego's local LGBTQ magazine at the time. And, and, and at the beginning of our conversation, I just asked him that question and let him talk. And I just didn't really get an opportunity to tell him what I had done. Frankly, this doesn't bother me that I don't tell people I'm a pastor. The reason why is because of what I mentioned earlier. People can sometimes get stiff and weird, and I actually want to know and get to know real human beings and have real conversation with them. So we just talked like two human beings. He shared about his upbringing, and he shared about his background. Turned out, this was a religious kid. Grew up in the church his whole life. Mom was the church administrative assistant. His dad was a well-respected elder. His whole life, even into his teenage years, he was steeped in church. Went to Bible college, even. But by the time I met him that night, he was far away from all that. He was living in a pretty broken place. Living with a, an abusive man in a relationship. And was doing terribly unhealthy things. He was harassed and helpless, flayed open, and cast aside like a sheep without a shepherd. So I asked him, I said, how do you think that change occurred from you being, you know, sort of goody two-shoes Bible college kid to now being in the situation you're in today? And he said, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not really sure how it all happened, but if I had to guess, there'd be two things that come to mind. One is, I, I got to tell you, my relationship with my dad was always really, really uncomfortable. I never felt like I had his approval. He was physically present, but he was emotionally absent. He just never told me that he loved me. He never let me know how valuable I was to him. And so I always kind of felt like my dad was ashamed of me. And then he said, the second thing is maybe, maybe a little bit more theological. I just figured with the kinds of thoughts that I would have in my head and the kinds of sins that I would struggle with, that probably it was most likely the case that even if there was a God, that this God surely must have turned his back on me for the disgusting things that I had struggled with. At that point, I couldn't be silent anymore. And I said, listen, I got to tell you, I'm a pastor and I wasn't, I really wasn't trying to hide that at all. I just wanted to have a conversation and, and he understood. And I said, listen, I just, I got to get preachy with you for a second. I said, you, you said you feel like God must have turned his back on you, but I need to let you know that God has in fact not turned his back on you, but he did turn his back on his only son, for you at his cross. And he did that so that he could be the father that you never had.
He did that so that your sin would be atoned for and forgiven. And I promise you, he is the father you have always hoped for. As I was saying this, he started to cry. In fact, he started to weep. I mean, he was, he was sobbing. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, growing up in church, I never heard it put like that before. Shortly after that, he had to leave. And all I can tell you is that when, I, when he went to leave, I went to shake his hand and he came and gave me a hug. And it was the closest thing I can compare it to is what it feels like when my little guy Lincoln hugs me, just embraced me with everything he had like a son and a father. Now, is it possible that this young man heard the gospel in his church growing up? Sure. It's possible. I mean, it's even likely. But the sad fact is the message that he was left with was one of legalism and fear. So what an incredible privilege it was for me to share with him the good shepherd who loves fallen sheep. It was my joy to do so because Jesus is the love the world is really searching for. They just don't know it. As G.K. Chesterton quipped, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Substitute brothel with anything that people look to for meaning or significance or purpose in their life. And it's the same thing. In closing, there's a third most important reason we're called to preach the gospel, and that is because he loves us. It's all too easy in sermons like this to talk about all the work that needs to be done and all the opportunity we have, and in the process, forget the ultimate reason for why it is we preach. Listen, we preach because we have been loved. We have been recipients of his great love. Never forget every single day of your life that every single one of you are just as much a part of the crowd Jesus looks over with compassion. Never forget that apart from his grace intervening in your life, you are like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless also. Some of you listening here today probably know that sense of being lost more than others. Some of you have battled real addictions or maybe been consumed by greed or, or lost your family due to whatever kinds of problems there were and then God revealed himself to you and you really felt that you had come from a place of being lost and then found saved from being eaten alive by the wolves. On the other hand, some of you might never have really felt lost. Maybe you were baptized on the eighth day, a child of Israel, you know, I mean, the whole thing. And you've always believed in Jesus and you can't ever remember not believing in Jesus. And yet I need to tell you, no matter what your story is, ultimately all of our stories are the same. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's your story, Christian. That's my story, no matter what background came before it. 
God didn't have to continue the creation after mankind fell into sin. He didn't have to endure his people as idolatry and spiritual adultery. He didn't have to send prophet after prophet to bring God's people back to him. He didn't have to send his son to live for you, to die for you, to raise for you. But God so loved you that he gave you his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Yes, though your sin has earned just wrath and anger, praise God, he has graciously come to us where we're at. In fact, that's the whole reason he came. Jesus said, you want to sum up my mission statement? I'm here to seek and save the lost. Not the godly, not the good, not those who got it together, the lost, the sheep that are heading off into the wolf's mouth and don't know it. I'm here for them. So the Apostle Paul can say, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He came, as our text says, preaching and healing to save those in need of rescue. He comes to where you and I are still today. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, in the midst of sinning, in the midst of running, in the midst of rebelling, Christ died for you. He loves you and has proven it in his son. And that fact alone is the overarching reason for why we want to share this news at all. It's such good news to know how loved we are that you, you can't help but want to say, hey, I got to tell you about this too because I want you to experience such grace as well. 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. So too, we preach because he first preached to us in love. 